0: And so, like, I had no choice. I didn't want to get made fun of anymore. I didn't want to be overweight. And so, mm-hmm. and so, the same type of theory applies, where you can't just look at singular problems and have singular answers. And so, I mean, a lot of people don't understand, like, imaging does not equal intervention. And so, I mean, the biggest thing is, anytime you eat out, ninety-nine percent of places are going to be using vegetable oils when they're cooking stuff. For instance, one of the things that. I think that people don't do enough now is just connect face to face without interruptions for three Ryan
1: Muncie is probably the smartest guy I know.
0: Trust me, Muncie is the nutrition guy.
1: Ryan Muncie's out there trying to make the world better for all of us.
0: The Optimal Performance Podcast is bold, edgy, creative, entertaining, and epic.
1: Ryan Muncie is my go to guy. Ryan Muncie is the first guy I call. He's making people's lives better. Ryan Muncie's an innovator and gentlemen, you are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks, makers of 100% natural and open source supplements designed to help you live optimal. For more information on how to build optimal mental and physical performance into your life, keep it right here, listening to the OPP, and of course, go to naturalstacks.com. All right, guys, uh, really cool episode for you today. This is Dr. Anthony Gustin, Uh, Anthony is a sports chiropractor, he is the founder and president of a few different food companies. One of them is Equip Foods, formerly known as PureWad, and also Perfect Keto. So uh, sit back, this is going to be a really fun episode today. We're talking about a lot of um, things that will help all of us as optimizers, um, whether it's mental performance, keeping things uh, on track and, and time management and you know juggling projects, uh, but also the keto side of things, uh, the physical wellness side of things where we incorporate um, movement practices and uh, physical recovery and healing and well-being into all of this stuff. So uh, this is really fun. A couple of housekeeping notes. Uh, as always, guys, go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the show notes on the blog post for this episode, uh, leave us a five-star review. We love those. They help us out a lot. Go to iTunes and do that. Share the OPP with the people in your life that you know will benefit from and enjoy the things that we're talking about. And finally, uh, I've got an announcement for you guys. This is one of the final episodes of the OPP that I will host, uh, starting in January, 2018, I will be hosting uh, my own show. It will be called the better human project, and you'll be able to find it on iTunes under the better human project, or just by searching my name, Ryan Muncy, uh, tell you more about that over there. Uh, for now, we'll just say thank you to natural stacks for the opportunity to host the OPP. This has been a blast. I have enjoyed every minute of it. I have enjoyed being with you, the listeners and on the new show, I will continue to do everything that I have been doing here in terms of seeking and disseminating all of the best knowledge to help you be the best possible human that you can be. Plus the catch over there will be that we are taking 50% of all the proceeds and going to charity with that. So it's be better and do better. All right, here's your show. Enjoy Dr. Anthony Gustin on the OPP. Anthony, thanks for hanging out with us today.
0: Thanks for having me, buddy. How are you?
1: I'm doing well, man. Doing well. You? (sighs) Great. Good. All right. Well, before we jump into this, uh, we're going to read your Twitter bio like we do for all of our guests. It Twitter says, bio? I
0: don't know if I've updated that in about three years, man. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. We'll, we'll see how it goes, though. We'll see how date it is.
1: All right. So I'll read it, and then you get a chance to add anything <laughs> you want to add. It says, Sports Cairo, functional medicine practitioner, strength-slash-crossfit coach, and food and fitness skeptic-turned-entrepreneur, founder of Perfect Ketones and Equip Foods.
0: I buy it. I buy it, yeah.
1: Okay. All right. Well, let's start with sports Cairo. What's the difference between a Cairo and a sports Cairo?
0: So I'm probably gonna get a lot of hate mail from this. I usually do whenever this stuff, stuff airs. Uh, I'm generally a, a huge fan of chiropractors for the sense that majority of the chiropractic profession is founded on very old science where people think that they're putting joints in another place and that cures all ailments. And so the the train of thought is that Your spine is made up of certain segments and out of your spine runs uh, spinal nerves. So your spinal cord goes down the middle of your spinal column and the spinal nerve comes out of your vertebral segments in between them. And that, if you have your spine misaligned, that, that causes pressure on your nerve roots and then that causes disease anywhere. So all your tissues, all your muscles, all your joints, everything is innervated by your nervous system, which comes down through the spinal cord and through the nerve roots. So, if you put any pressure on that, the hypothesis says that if you correct that pressure, then you reduce the interference, and that leads to health where we need it. And so, the thought for that, that Cairo was founded on, that a lot of Cairo still kind of go by, is that you don't need to do anything in the body besides adjust spinal segments, and that cures everything. Not a big fan of that. And so, sports Cairo is, is very different, where we operate kind of as a hybrid between. Like A PT or orthopedist, obviously not doing the surgery, but we're looking at function of the whole body and how everything works together, not just obviously spinal segments. Like it's the spine is is a part of your body which moves. Uh, we're going to look at that, but looking at things from like a, a a pretty comprehensive system from function of your body and how your joints are operating, basically how you're moving, and looking at it from kind of a whole system approach. And so instead of just saying like, "Oh, I have elbow pain." okay well i'm not just going to look at your elbow i need to see how your wrist is moving how your hands are moving the movements you're doing how your shoulders are operating how your spine is moving how you, how basically you create from like your trunk and your hips motion that translates to your shoulder then your elbow then your hand because all of those things could influence elbow problems and so looking at things from an integrated approach from a movement uh, specific standpoint is kind of the difference between a sports chiro, and one who's just a general chiropractor who does spinal adjustments. And so not to say that spinal adjustments aren't helpful for a lot of different reasons, just that they're not gonna fix elbow problems, in my opinion. Right. So um, that's kind of the difference between those two things. And again, yeah. hate, you know, hate, bring on the hate mail, I'll I'll receive it all day long. It's fine, mm. it's no problem.
1: No, I I don't envision you getting a lot of hate mail for that. I think that was a a great response. And I think it, it, it'll be one that comes back up, you know, as we continue our conversation because you know, you you do take that really high level view uh, of the body and how it works and movement and nutrition. And and that'll come back up as we talk about ketosis and and ketones again, I'm I'm sure. But before we do all that, you you, you and I have talked before, we're both sort of uh, skeptics. We like to understand, we like to question why and understand systems. At at what point did you sort of have that skeptical moment uh, where you looked at traditional chiropractic and you said, well, there's more to it than just adjusting the spine.
0: Well, I think that happened early on, and not just with chiropractic, but with health in general. I was super overweight and super unhealthy when I was younger. And I was getting injured a bunch and just generally unhealthy and was doing all the things that I was told to to be healthy and none of them worked. And so I had to figure this out by myself. And so that became why I was testing things from an early age. Like when I was thirteen, fourteen, I was trying out different meal plans and stuff like this. And like I there there was a dial-up internet then. There wasn't like a lot of blogs and all the stuff that you could research whatever. I was just reading textbooks when I was that young about science and trying to figure out what worked for me and why. And so like, I had no choice. I didn't want to get made fun of anymore. I didn't want to be overweight. And so that's what drove me initially. And so I had um, a bunch of knee injuries playing football when I was younger. And so I went to a local chiropractic PT clinic and they said, there's nothing wrong with your knees. The orthopedist said you need to have surgery, but... And on the MRI, I showed like meniscus tears, but they say your hips are just weak and you're not having any external rotation in your hips. So you're, you're getting less torsional force, force in your knees. And I was like, oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. And so this is kind of what led me from sports gyro to functional medicine as well, is that that's the integrated approach of more so what's going on inside of your body instead of just outside or external with kind of joints and muscles and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And so the same type of theory applies where you can't just look at singular problems and have singular answers. And so you need to have with the body an integrated approach. And so I've been tinkering with that stuff and, tr- and trying to see things, like you said, from a higher level view more often. And so... Like if you had a fire alarm going off in your house, you know, I mean it 's going to be annoying obviously you 're not going to go cover up the fire alarm like you 're going to ask okay, where's the fire and how did it get started, and how do we not have that fire again and so just that in all of health, um whether that be movement, sleep, stress, nutrition, figuring out kind of the downstream effect of the things you 're doing and, and how things influence each other has been. Kind of this the the whole integrated approach that I've been trying to solve and just get better at as I as I move forward here.
1: Yeah, there there's a lot in that answer. And you know, I guess the first thing that stands out to me is, you know, how fortunate you were to have that positive experience with, you know, somebody who looked at your hips and and saw your yeah. movement from that integrative and, and functional standpoint instead of just saying, Oh, well, yeah, that dude's right. Let's give you uh, you know, let's take you in for knee surgery.
0: Which is ridiculous. You know what I mean? 16 yep. years old, but to get knee surgery where you can't, you don't grow new meniscus, like they're going to cut that out when I'm 16. Are you kidding me? Right. Like, still on imaging. That's what people, a lot of people don't understand. Like Imaging does not equal intervention. And so I still have that shredded meniscus in my left knee if you were to image it, but I feel great. And the thing is too, like I was traveling a lot last few months, wasn't keeping up with, a bunch of kind of hip stability things and maybe ate a little more inflammatory diet than I usually would, and he started acting up again, started be becoming really sore. But when I have those things in check and actually operating at a high level, it's never a problem. And so a lot of people get imaging or they get lab results. and say, oh, my blood value is at this mo- amount or I have a herniated disc, therefore I can't do this. And they let the imaging dictate their life. And I think that that's kind of an incorrect way to look at things as well. Like you need to strip it back even further. And ask yourself, like, you know, does this actually equal an intervention? Or is this just an associated finding and which you can work around?
1: Yeah. So let's take a step back into that answer. And you said you know, you've been traveling the last few months and you know, maybe you haven't been as on point and maybe eating some more of the inflammatory foods than you normally would. What are some of the foods that people may be eating um, that are going to increase inflammation where maybe they, don't, they didn't think that it would?
0: Well, I mean, the biggest thing is anytime you eat out, 99% of places are going to be using vegetable oils when they're cooked with stuff. And so I try to be rigorous when I do this, but sometimes when I travel and eat local food, it's just not even worth it to modify. And so I just know that I'm going to be taking a hit with that. Um, so inflammatory uh, vegetable oils, and th- like even if you get a side of vegetables and you eat super clean, you're not eating the garbage, most things are going to be cooked or sauces will have hidden ingredients that you don't expect. And so that's where I think a lot of the garbage comes from. And I think also food quality. Yeah, you can get vegetables and stuff. But I try to go lean meat when possible when I'm eating out unless it clearly states where the meat comes from. So I'm sure people listening to this know that a lot of the good and bad things in meat come in the fat tissue. Um, so let's, let's say you have a commercially raised animal product. You're going to have a lot of the inflammation in the, in the bad fat. right? You're also going to have a lot of micronutrients and good fat when it's grass-fed. And so I think that's where a make or break comes when you actually know your food quality. And so I try to strip it away and just get a, a lean protein source. that's just amino acids when I do travel. But yeah, I think that what the, the biggest thing is just, just being mindful of what the food's cooked in and kind of what, what could be hidden in different sauces and, and things like that.
1: Yeah. That's really good advice. I don't think anybody has actually brought that up on the podcast previously. Um, are you still practicing?
0: We' uh, actively active, very very few, so I have a few different people that I work with kind of on a one on one basis, but with the, the way that the so kind of what happened there was a year and a half ago, two years ago, I started this company called Equip Foods was pure water originally and so the sports med the and functional medicine practice was great and it was very rewarding, and I was learning a lot uh, but I get to a point where I had a, this realization with myself that I was only going to be impacting maximum like fifteen to twenty people a day. And if I were to do that throughout the rest of my life, I, I literally wrote down on a sheet of paper, okay, this times 40 years, you know, equals this many people I can impact. I'm like, well, this is not the problem I want to solve. Like this, this needs to grow greater than it should be. Yep. So I stripped it down and looked at, okay, what are fundamental problems with people impeding them from maximal health? And when it came down to it, the answer was always nutrition. And so whether that's recovering from a sports injury, say like you strain a muscle, all of your tissues are made from the things you eat. Okay. So if if you want to build new things or repair tissue, you need to have good raw materials. It's just that simple. And then you're looking at, okay, if someone has gut problems or somebody has diabetes or somebody has inflammatory disease, stuff like this, from a functional medicine standpoint, food quality. So f- food kind of was this fundamental pillar that if you didn't have that, good luck with with reaching optimal health at any other point in your life. Right. So with that, I thought, okay, what are scalable ways to solve a nutrition problem? Like what, what are the things that people are not doing that they could be doing an easier job of? And so I started writing articles at this point, kind of got a, a little bit of an online following at that stage and asked people like, you know, you know, what are the biggest problems? And and for people that knew they should be eating better, but weren't going out and, and buying all this, you know, grass fed meat at Whole Foods or wherever and good local farmers market type of produce. It was um, convenience, and so what we ended up launching was a line of supplements. I also, you know, growing up, I think you were the same way, probably, which is like any male, like late twenties, early thirties at this point, has run through the gamut of of <laughs> disgusting supplements, trying to like eke out every strength gain, and it's yeah. so like I went through that world. I know how disgusting that is. I'm like, okay, people are already making a bad choice here with super inflammatory and filler laden. Like whey proteins and stuff like this that are just Mm -hmm. bad for your gut and just have a bunch of garbage in them. So, I made a line of filler free supplements that, you know, we did a beef protein, a sweet potato powder, greens powder, like things that represent whole foods as much as possible to make them more convenient for people. Not as a way to replace eating whole foods, but as a way to kind of open the conversation when people start taking these things and say, oh man, I feel way better when I eat this way. Mm-hmm. And so we can educate them on the back end and say, well, yeah, this is what happens if you eat whole food. And here's how you can incorporate more of that stuff in your daily life. Um, another thing that I was doing a lot in my practice was using a ketogenic diet, either with athletes or with people from the functional medicine standpoint of fixing and reversing a lot of different disease states. And so the biggest problem with that was accessibility and maintenance of a ketogenic diet. So getting someone on board from... Kind of a standard American diet to a ketogenic diet is very therapeutic, but very challenging. There's a lot of behavior change that needs to happen. And so, from that, okay, we look at nutrition as the main problem. How can we fix it? We can fix it with the ketogenic diet, but what is the main problem? It's accessibility and um, adherence. And so, we've created now a line of products and we're going more into food products. So, we started out with exogenous ketones, for example, where somebody can take those and kind of sample what being in a high state of ketosis would be like. As well as other products that are complementary and make ketosis much easier. Um, so, we're going more into food products now so that people can just, you know, every, anything they would need to replace with that maybe has sugars in it or things that they like with a ketogenic diet so they can reduce the, the burden of, of processing sugars in their bodies as much as possible. We're trying to fix that problem now as well. Um, and so, you know, running those two companies as well as many other projects, there's just no way looking at the scale. I mean, we we ship you know tens of thousands of orders a month, which equals tens of thousands of people that can be affected and, be, and use these products. And I can do this all the time. Like, I, if mm-hmm. I wanted to practice in the weekend, I have to we have to line up schedules and I have to go one on one to a patient. And it's just not an effective use uh, in a scalable solution, in my opinion. And so I've I've stripped down last, like middle of last year. Um, Left my day to day practice, but had still been working with people one on one. And and now I'm kind of trimming down that and hopefully getting away from that just to focus on everything 100%. Yeah,
1: it's interesting. You and I have not had that conversation previously. And it's another area where we would either agree or have had similar experiences because I mean, that's one of the reasons that I wanted to get out of the gym. I mean, originally I was in a Golds gym and I had the, the mental issue, uh, I, I felt confined. It was, you know, hey, I can only reach people who are members of this location in this right. city. Uh, if they're not a member of this gym, I can't help them. Uh, and I didn't like that. So that was one of the reasons I started my own place. And then, you know, at that point, after a couple of years of that, I had the same realization that you just had where you know, I can be here all day, every day, and I'm only going to impact at most 200 members uh, at a time. And, you know, through the internet, we have the ability to reach millions of people and hopefully impact the lives of, you know, thousands, if not millions of people over the course of our lives. So I I can relate to that. I I totally understand that. Um, So we'll talk, we'll we'll focus and talk more about what you're doing with Perfect Keto. Uh, But before we do that, just a question in in sort of the the higher level view, uh, since we've already mentioned that with your Serial entrepreneurship. You know, I think uh, people are starting to get an understanding of how many things you have your hands in at one time. Talk a little bit about the importance of systems and communication for making sure that all those businesses and projects stay on track.
0: <laughs> if some of my team members were able to describe my level of systems that I have and how intense I am about stuff, uh, most people would just laugh. Like, the I have a very rigid system that so in the beginning of the year, I go through this very huge audit of every part of my life and come up with these ways I want to improve in the direction I want to go that boils down into this really insane spreadsheet that I keep daily with te- with things that I want to do either on a daily basis or projects I want to get done those that day um based upon a point system, I get ranked and I rank myself kind of on a, on a sliding scale and I get like either red, yellow, or green rating for the week, which they won't tell me how to go. I also track in there books I've read, conversations I've had, um, movement routines I'm doing, all this different stuff. Um, and that's just for, for like my day-to-day. I also have a really ridiculous um, Evernote system where... So Evernote is an application you can use to manage just uh, notes in general. And so anytime something pops in my head, that goes into Evernote. And then later on I sort that into... You know, I have basically 7 different projects or businesses that I'm running right now. And so then it goes to a pending folder. And then those get sorted into things I'm waiting on, things that need to be actionable, and then I rank those in a priority basis. And so when I want to do something in a day, I say, okay, I'm going to work on Perfect Keto. I go into the Evernote that is actionable and it's ranked top to bottom of things I need to do. Yeah.
1: With
0: that, we have communication for the team on Slack. So I have 7 different Slack channels that I manage. I try to not do any email at all. Um, but essentially it's the the daily spreadsheet plus Evernote plus Slack is kind of how all this is done. And then every time that we get something that is kind of the way where I perfect it, or I think that this is the best way to do it, um, we make a Google Doc, and that should be there that anybody should be able to follow. and so screenshots, video tutorials, if necessary,' and just layering that over and over and over again. It should be like, in my opinion, and this is what's good and bad. It's kind of the identity shift. Going from clinician to business owner, you have to let go of a lot of ego and a lot of the uh, I'm irreplaceable type of feeling. Mm-hmm. So as a clinician, you, you are pretty irreplaceable in my opinion. Like, it, A lot of stuff is basically an algorithm in your head that you're taking someone through and there's a lot of touch points and there's a lot of depth to your visit. When you're a business owner, you should essentially be putting yourself out of work over and over and over and over again which is a very humbling experience. When sometimes I look back, I'm like, Oh, well, this company could probably be running without me. And I'm like, this is a good thing, but it's also, you know, it's a little bit of an ego check at the same time. Right. But those type of systems, plus always just making yourself replaceable, I think is the best way to move forward in business and not stagnate and wonder you know, why the hell you're not getting results.
1: Yeah, that's really, really valuable information. Um, what's on the the audit that that annual self audit that you do, what are a few things that you're looking at, uh, to sort of make sure that you are growing and evolving year after year?
0: Yeah. So it changes every year, but it's, there's a big kind of purpose vision goals type of setting that I do. And the purpose doesn't really change. And for me, that's to positively affect as many people's health as like basically through nutrition as possible. And Then kind of break down. I mean, I can pull my sheet right now and look at it if you want. But we have so for 2017, there were a bunch of physical goals, a bunch of mental goals, some personal, um, some financial, and spiritual. Whereas I did, you know, a hundred unique, meaningful personal connections. So, for instance, one of the things that I think that people don't do enough now is just connect face to face without interruptions for three, four hours at a time. Like no one does this. Do you think the last time you talked to somebody for three hours without technology?
1: Yeah. I can, cause I just did it this weekend.
0: Okay. Well, but, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah but it, I mean,
1: it does, it stands out. I mean, yeah. it was, you know, it's, and, it's not something that happens um, without intention and it doesn't happen as often as you know, I would like for it to.
0: Right. And so with the variety of people, especially living in San Francisco. Yeah. yeah good luck. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're limited to 15 minute iPhone interrupted coffee meetings. It's, it's awful. Um, and so that's something that is on there. So, and then after that, I break down every business into kind of big goals that I want to get accomplished that year. And so let me see here.
1: This is all, I mean, it's great. I mean, I don't think we need every single line, but you know, just given the time of year that this show is, is coming out and you know, it's, it's that time where people start to reflect on, well, how did I do in 2017? What do I want for myself and for my businesses? And I, th- I think it's great that, you know, you sort of, I, I'm very much the same way. I do it the same. You know, I have business, I have personal life, or, or you know, relationship. Then I have my my fitness goals, my nutrition goals. Um, you know, you, you break that down very much the yeah. same way I do into, um, I guess you could call them compartments or or you know, domains of your life.
0: Yeah, um, I think the biggest part is that every month I also review every single goal and my progress towards it, yeah. whether I'm going in the right direction or not. And so this yeah. continual audit as well is imperative because otherwise, you don't know what direction you're going in. You don't know what actions you need to take. And another big thing is, I expect to only be successful with about 70% of my goals I make in a year. I think anything more than that, and you place the bar too low. And so anything lower than that, you, then you just you shot way too high. And so I think that around the 65 to 75% range of success in the goals is, is where you want to be. I think that sets you enough to motivate you to push forward and push hard. Without setting the goals too too wild that you're not accomplishing anything. Yeah. And so that's the thing too is like, you know, we're a couple weeks out and I can see already like it'll be probably about 70, 75% of the things that I accomplish. Otherwise, I'm failing a lot and being comfortable with that and acknowledging right. like, oh, you know, this, all this stuff didn't happen because all this other stuff happened or focus shifted or, you know, plans changed.
1: So some of the things that maybe you didn't succeed at or the ones that you failed on will they roll over into the next year? Or will you reevaluate and say, maybe that's not you know the best use of our time or that's no longer a priority?
0: Yeah, I think that constantly reevaluating that. And so even throughout the year, I've stopped certain goals and changed them or modified them significantly. And so like you said, some lose significance. Um, I think some will carry over. And like one or two will miss by like 3 weeks because we want to launch a certain product line that I wanted to do this year. Um, So I'm going to put it on next year. But otherwise, I'm going to see. Okay, this goal wasn't met. Why wasn't it met? Is it still a priority? You know, was there a fatal system in place that like wasn't allowing this to happen? What were the reasons that kind of impeded it? Was it important in the first place? Just kind of reevaluate those things from the ground up, and that'll be. So I usually go to a big retreat at the end of the year. So this year I'm going to Europe, and it'll be a good three, four, or five days where I just think. And then I'll write all this stuff down. And then I'll plan out the year from that kind of working backwards. And I think a lot of people also don't take the mental space to do these things. Like if, if you're working day to day and then you go home at night to try to do this over lunch, like good luck having any kind of clarity. Right. right. Yeah. You need to step back, get some room, actually room in it and have some deep thinking without trying to consume so much information or create so much output. I think both of these things, they really clog up your brain. And so I think it's just a couple of days where you're not on your phone, you're not trying to read a bunch of stuff. You're not trying to listen to podcasts. You're not trying to do work and not try to do emails and just think and just like, okay, what is important to me? Why is it important to me? Like what is possible? Like what are all the things I could do? And, and work on them for a few days. Sounds very kind of productive because you're not getting stuff done. But when this guides you for an entire year and you can track it, I think this is a very good use of time.
1: Yeah, I like it. Um, Anthony, let's talk a little bit about Perfect Keto. Um, There are a lot of ketone companies. Um, Keto has basically exploded in the last two years. How is Perfect Keto different from some of the other companies in the industry?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. So, Especially when we launched, there were two other companies that were, for the same product, about two times more expensive... And they, in my opinion, tasted awful. So the product wasn't, you know, the adherence for ketosis wasn't wasn't there.
1: And when you say same um, product, you're talking about specifically sold, an yeah. exogenous so, ketone. Yeah,
0: we launched with an exogenous ketone um, last November, and so one company was at like $250 a tub, which is insane. The other one was at about ninety ninety five. And with running the other company, and they both tasted terrible, in my opinion. And they also did not disclose how much and what ingredients they used in the product. Which to me is a bizarre thing. Um, coming from Equip, I always wanted transparency to be the, the biggest thing that we focused on. Mm-hmm. And so we launched, um, in my opinion, uh, better flavor, um, no fillers is a big thing. So I don't trust most companies myself. And like, if I don't know the owners of a company at this point, I don't use the products. Yeah. Um, there, there's just so much garbage. Like one of the first products that we launched with Equip was, a, was the pre workout. And the manufacturer we were using, I mean, I didn't know what the hell I was doing at this point, I was just learning. I still am, but we got the package and it said, you know, 454 grams of what it should be, but it actually weighed like 510. I was like, what the hell is this? And I go, oh well. There was you know X Y and Z that we put in to help the machines run faster and to do this and that. And then they, yeah. go, they go, it's industry standard. You don't have to put it on the label. Don't worry, everybody does it. Like, what do you mean? Like, yeah. no, no, everybody does it. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Like, okay, this is not what I signed up for. So it was a huge legal problem. Um, and at that point, like, both companies have been self-funded too. So like at that point, it was like tens of thousands of dollars, and I was like, oh, you know, I thought we were going to go, go under to this point. It was awful, but learned from that very early on that like. Most companies do this, and it's disgusting. Yeah. Yep, They're and, in the
1: in in the industry, those are called flow agents, and uh, yep. it's something that Natural Stacks has, has dealt with. And and I mean, there's you know, transparency, open source, no fillers. You know, that's a huge part of Natural Stacks as well. So our yeah. listeners are that's are looking doing. for that yeah. from companies.
0: Yeah, you guys are on a very short list of companies that I actually trust. So <laughs> th- thank you for for doing the right right thing on that. But yeah, I mean, that was something that. Just the dedication to, to none of that garbage in our products has been huge too. Not having any type of proprietary blends um, and just focused on, on what actually matters. And so what I always tell my team is that we're not a product-based company. Like We just have that as a way to give people what they want and to succeed in a, in a uh, KGN diet. But what we are is an educational company. So what we've been doing has been using the revenue from all the products to create content and educational materials that people need to actually make behavior changes to make the ketogenic diet successful for them. It's a very nuanced and very challenging thing to actually execute on properly. And so we've invested hard into content. We've published about 5 articles a week um, for the past year. And so we're an education company first, in my opinion, and product company second. So we're not just trying to sell stuff because it's hot and to to make tons of money. We're, we're trying to reinvest as much as possible into the space so it can grow and people can be as successful as possible. That's another huge difference.
1: Yeah, I really love that. Uh, so, so two questions on that. First, probably the shorter answer, um, where can listeners get more of that educational material?
0: Yeah, so I read some in my own site, which is just dranthonygustin.com and then the other one is just perfectketo.com.
1: Okay, so we'll have links to both of those in the show notes for you guys listening. Um, and then that's the second time that you've mentioned the, uh, the big behavior changes required to move to a ketogenic lifestyle. What are some of those major hurdles and, and what makes them maybe more challenging than a different dietary shift?
0: I mean, look at the food availability right now. When somebody goes out to eat, when they go to a grocery store when they go to a convenience store, when they're at the airport, when people are actually purchasing food anywhere, I mean, I live in San Francisco and it's still hard here. I mean, this is like one of the places that most food is grown, Central Valley of California, super healthy spot, super affluent, and still it's difficult to eat healthy here. I mean, we're not even talking about a key junk diet. Like just to eat real food, can be challenging. And so I think it's also the, the confusion between, you know, one study says that strawberries will kill you. One study says that they're the best food ever. You know what I mean? All this conflict when these studies are done and then extrapolated in such a poor form and not ever thought of it on an individual level. And so different things work for different people at different times. And so the biggest thing in my opinion is just the individuality of health and getting clear your own one's goals so that they can actually test what works for them in an individual setting. And so educating people about that, I think is one of the biggest things that they can do so that way they can own their own health and not just say like, Oh, in the ketogenic diet, like you should just eat 50 grams of carbs and you'd be good. It doesn't work like that. I mean, you and I talked before that you can eat 150 grams of protein and be in ketosis, and I can eat 70 and be in ketosis. That's a huge difference.
1: Yeah, I mean right? that's a that's a really really big range, and it's not like our body weight is that
0: different. Yeah, again, you're way more jacked than me. So. <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm not. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, so this is where people need to realize that. Okay. but right. I
1: mean, and, and just to put that in perspective, I mean, my wife follows a ketogenic diet and I mean, she's at around, uh, I think she's around 90 to 100 grams of protein a day. And oftentimes she'll check her blood ketones and she's like two or three. I mean, she's wow. way, way up there. And I mean, she's eating, sounds like maybe more protein than you or just as much.
0: Yeah, I mean, and this is the biggest thing is that people want to make a ketogenic diet since it's a, it's a quantity-based diet. And so what that means is people want to have these simple rules and following it. Oh, what, you know? how many macros should I eat? Well, just, it, it depends. Like, have, you, have you tested this? Like, are you actually looking at what works for you? Um, are you actually eating real food? And so this is another thing too where people can get maybe an initial positive response switching from a standard American diet to a low-carb ketogenic diet. But if the food quality sucks, in a couple of weeks, a couple of months, you're going to fall apart. Because you, again, yeah. like I said earlier, your body is made up of the things you eat. So if you're eating trash, expect to feel and look like trash. It's just as simple as it is. And so mm-hmm. people you know, make an initial change, but the huge roadblock that they face is that they don't have quality food first. And so this is a, this is a problem where people, you know, I don't know if you see much of like, on social media, yeah. these keto experts that eat... I, you know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Vita with yeah. bacon chopped up in it. because they register ketones in the blood meter. They think they're healthy. It's absurd. Yeah. And so these are the type of people where it's like, they tell people, oh yeah, just, just eat 33 grams of carbs a day and and you'll be good and just eat like this. I think yep. this is one of the, the big things that I think is dangerous about a ketogenic diet is that it's not a quality-based diet inherently. You can eat like shit and you can have... Eat, Whatever kind of food quality and still register high amount of ketones in your blood, so I think that's dangerous. And I think getting people to think about food from a more integrated approach of what they're eating and the quality of food. So as I said, like a ketogenic diet can be super therapeutic and and very good for a lot of people. But I think until you get to the point where you're zooming out and looking at food quality, I don't even like the mess of the ketogenic diet. There's just there's Mm -hmm. there's too much there. I mean, this is a generic. Statement for people, like I understand, uh, you know, I've said this before and people get a little pushback and a little upset saying like, oh, well, my kid has seizures and he needs to have ketones at a certain level. It's like, yes, fine. Okay. But like for a general population, you need to be eating real food. And even in that instance, the kid who has seizures should be eating a real food ketogenic diet. Right. A quality ketogenic diet. Right. Uh, So that's a huge thing for me.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you this later in the conversation, but I think now is as good a time as any need to work it in. But you recently wrote a blog post and, you know, it was kind of challenging people saying, you know, the ketogenic diet is not inherently healthy. I think this was a big part of, you know, that article. Um, what were some of the other points that you made in that article that, you know, resonated with people?
0: Well, I mean, I think the, the food quality one was huge. And I think also relying on the, the cookie cutter advice is another one. Um, so I think it makes people mentally lazy, and it, I don't think it it allows people to really own their own health. And I think that you and I have done a really good job trying to teach people that like life should be an an ongoing experiment, and it doesn't ever end. Right. Like you're always going to be collecting data, and that should just be a, a mental habit that people form. And I think that when they look for generic advice, um, and I think I wrote in the article something like, you know, if you look for average advice expect to operate like an average human which i mean <laughs> look, look around when you're at an airport like i don't think you want to i don't think you want that right
1: no that, i love that that was a great line um so with all that said do you follow you don't follow a ketogenic diet year-round
0: right yeah dude you Not do year round. i'd say like 70 percent of the time
1: okay so how do you decide like when you're going to cycle in and out of that or is it just sort of like hey i'm going to be traveling it's going to be hard to stick to it i'm going to bounce out what's what does that look like for you
0: Yeah. So I think generally just low carb, like I said, I was overweight when I was younger. So I think I just tolerate carbs, not as great as other people. And so that's something I've learned over a long period of time. Um, Always whole foods start there. And then, like you said, if if I'm traveling or if I'm somewhere where the local food is very carbohydrate rich and from real sources, I'll eat that. Um, Also too, like if I'm training for bumping up my training intensity and I feel better with a little bit more carbs, I know you've talked about carb cycling in the past and how you feel better. I'm the same way. So I add in a sweet potato a couple times a week, or add in some some berries or something like that, and I feel way better. Um, and I just think it's I think it's normal. Mm-hmm. I think it's normal to to switch back and forth and and not have to be so rigid. Um, I I used to track very intensely every single thing I ate at every time of the day and amounts and blood ketone levels and all that different stuff. And I think that you at that point lose some intuition about what you actually should be eating.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so, you know, if, if I'm feeling a little sluggish on my energy levels, I'll either um, do a short fast or I'll start eating more carbohydrates. Another thing that I, I realize, like, if my sleep quality suffers a little bit, my intensity in the gym isn't there. Um, if I'm just feeling like I, I don't have sustained energy throughout the day, definitely ramp that up, and I feel a hundred times better. And then I peel back because I love the mental focus that a ketogenic diet provides me. Uh, but but in general, um, I skew more towards. I'd say a very low-carb ketogenic diet, okay. seventy to 80% of the time.
1: Okay. And you mentioned earlier, um, you know, when you were more uh, in your practice on a day-to-day basis, you were helping some athletes with the ketogenic diet. As I know, again, you know, we, we've kind of hit this a few times already, but everything is individual. But you know, from, a, uh, you know, from a stereotypical standpoint for, for an athlete, what recommendations would you make for athletes trying to, to be ketogenic?
0: Right, so Bay Area has a lot of high-end triathletes. So for them, it's it's amazing actually. And so they have to fuel up less through the throughout their races. Um, they can take like little sublings, ketone packs with them and mix them up like Gatorade while they're running. Um, and using fat as a fuel for extended races like that, or anything I'd say like anything over an hour, I'd say ketosis is really good for. It. Anything under an hour or explosive, don't do it. <laughs> and this is the thing where, where people try to apply it. Um, this broad stroke basis to sports performance. And I think that that's really incorrect thing to do. So like, for instance, I have a bunch of NFL players that I w- used to work on. Some of them, they knew what I was doing, they knew what I was writing about and wanted to do a ketogenic diet. And I said, absolutely not. So the, the average play in NFL lasts seven seconds. Yeah. If you know anything about energy systems, you know that that's not a good thing to to like try to me- metabolize fat and break it down into energy to use it for a seven second burst over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's just the same thing. Uh, high-end, like game-level CrossFit athletes. Don't eat a ketogenic diet. There's always going to be some freak that actually does perform well on it. And you're like, well, look at this guy. They did it. Look at this Look at this gal. Yep. Okay. Uh, like, totally, it's, totally fine. But like, just because... That, that's when
1: you, you, you got to hit them curve, with the uh, never use the exception to
0: prove the rule. Exactly. Like, th- there's always going to be a freak at the end of the bell curve. You know yep. what I mean? And it's, chances are usually very low that you're that freak.
1: If you're that freak, you 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 already know no, you're that yeah, person. You know. Yeah, <laughs> you, you wouldn't be asking at that point, right? No, I like it. That's really good advice. Um, you know, understand what you're trying to do, what the fuel pathway or what system is involved, and if you understand how that works, then you can understand you know how to plug in the inputs that you need to get the output that you want.
0: Exactly. Uh, so and test, And test too. So like you don't you don't know how you are on that spectrum unless you, tr- you try it out. Don't do it in a competitive landscape. <laughs> So, do it in training. Do it when you're ramping for the, up.
1: At least for the first time. Right.
0: Yeah. And I mean, Dom D'Agostino is one of the leading researchers, and um, friend Ryan Lowry is, is a young cat down in Florida, too. He's doing a lot of stuff. And they both found that, like, you know, roughly it th- can be anywhere from like three to four months is how long it could take for someone to become fully keto adapted and fat adapted. And so, don't give up on this after a week or two if you don't feel great. If you have that much of an off season to kind of ramp it up and try all it out, go ahead. But it may take longer than you think of just getting past this initial quote-unquote keto flu where your body's transitioning from using carbohydrates as the main fuel source to using ketones. And so after that, your body has certain mechanisms where it takes ketones into a cell, uh, certain transporters. And so those are upregulated over the course of up to four months. So research is still out on how long specifically, and I'm sure it varies very much individually. But you have to look at that and say, okay well, it's one or two weeks in, I still don't feel like I'm 100%. It might take longer than that. And so that's one of the things now we're starting to realize is that it may take some time before you're fully fat adapted.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. And one of the things that I've noticed and, and actually had conversations with quite a few people I've worked with and, and some other friends, that once you hit that point of becoming fat adapted, it's something that as long as you eat well, you don't really lose that ability. And, you, and in fact, you actually build better metabolic flexibility and, and, and that being yeah. the ability to go back and forth between fuel sources. And you, know, you could have that higher carb day and then it doesn't take you three more months to get fat adapted again. It might take you three or four more days and then you right. can get back into ketosis.
0: Exactly. So good example of this. I was pretty strict keto for a few, few weeks. The other night, I was back in San Francisco and went to this ridiculous sushi spot called Robin. Um, one of my favorite spots in the city. It pounded maybe like 25 pieces of sushi. It was a tasty many. was incredible. Definitely was not in ketosis after that. But the next day, fasting most of the day, level started to climb at night. And then the day after that, already back in ketosis. And so this is one of these things where like, you don't have to go through this major transition period over and over and over again. And I felt fine that day after two. It wasn't like I was going through this huge adaptation process again. Right. Like your cellular, like you said, you have some, a little bit of metabolic flexibility where once you upregulate a lot of these transporters in your cells, it's not like if you eat carbs one day, they're all going to go away. This is the fear that people have is that, well, ketogenic diet sucks because if I eat carbs once, I'm going to have to feel like crap again for the next week. It's like, no, nah, it, <laughs> it doesn't work that way. Like your, your body's very plastic in the sense that you know, you're going to have certain receptors and transporters be upregulated or downregulated over time and exposure to these things. And just because you you eat carbohydrates once a week or once a month or whatever doesn't mean that you're going to lose your ability to to use fat as a fuel.
1: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, if we look at it from an evolutionary standpoint, I, I just fail to believe that humans ever were rigid and structured in in eating a certain way. I mean, we are opportunistic feeders throughout our history. We've eaten whatever we could get our hands on. Sometimes that meant we didn't eat for a day because we couldn't. It's only been in the last hundred years that we've had access to as much food and whatever food as we want. And most of it being, you know, an inferior quality food with all the factory farm and, you know, Franken foods that are on grocery store shelves now. But you know, our bodies are designed to... You know, eat half of a woolly mammoth one day and then not eat for two or three days, and then yeah. you know maybe we walk past a fig tree and we, you know, eat until we're you know in a carb coma. Uh, you know, if it's real food and you know, I, I think our bodies are are designed to be able to handle it.
0: And yeah, I mean, this I've done a lot of thinking about this as well. And so if you think about how the ketogenic diet was used in history, it was probably more so during fasting than anything else. Mm-hmm. If you actually look at the things people were eating, yeah, definitely lower carb than what, what humans are eating now. But fasting was probably the primary source of, of elevated ketone levels in the blood. I mean, maybe for guys like you who are savage warriors, who are, you can eat a, a half a woolly mammoth and still have like 0. 0.7 <laughs> registering on your ketone meter. But um, yeah, I mean, look at the composition of the foods. Like, yeah, you're probably going to be moderate, but when we're, ketone levels were the highest was probably during fasting. I mean, how much were people crushing two avocados and three cups of coconut oil a day? You know, right. it was, probably wasn't a very realistic thing.
1: And, and even if they were doing that much coconut oil in a day, you got to think about how much work was involved to yeah. get that much coconut oil. Like it, weren't, it wasn't like they were grabbing it off the shelf out of the pantry. Like, well, they they were of- They were cracking coconuts.
0: Like an expeller press where they were like pushing coconut meat (laughs) through stuff, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And and so yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting thing. Like, and this is where people like, do you have to eat keto for the rest of your life? I I get all these crazy questions from people. Yeah. Because of the position I'm in, which is fine. I know people are curious. It's great, but. No, you don't. <laughs> it's so, a permanent thing.
1: Yeah, I got another question that I want to hear your answer to. I know you get this one all the time, and I've actually seen your answer for it on a blog, but I definitely want to get it on our, on our podcast. Um, so I'll just I'll hit you with it. Um, does using exogenous ketones kick one out of an intermittent fast?
0: I would say no, because it's a bioidentical form of beta-hydroxybutyrate molecule, which you're endogenously producing. And so you have to ask yourself, like, what is the purpose of the fast? And I would say if it's just to get the, I mean, I what what would you say? So you do a lot of intermittent fasting. What is what, yeah. what is your goal from intermittent fasting? It's really just to compress eating windows. Yeah. For what reason?
1: To keep insulin low. Yeah, to keep insulin low to get a little bit of autophagy. I mean, if I get basically I'm on a eighteen six or twenty four, uh, you know, cycle. So. Right. If I, I know if I get to like the 18 or 20 hour mark that, you know, basically it's 18 is about when, you know, blood sugar levels are kind of stabilizing and insulin is, you mm-hmm. know, all that stuff is kind of the magic happens and you start to get into that autophagy at around 18, 20 hours. So, I mean, if I can do that on a daily basis, I realize I'm not getting the full benefit of like a three or a five day fast, but if I can get close to that every single day, um, you know, and, and plus, I mean, I just know that it's I'm not eating all the time every day, so right. you know I'm I'm giving my body a break, um, you know, from having to digest food and you know secrete insulin and do all that yeah. stuff.
0: Yeah. So when you, when you have something like a beta hydroxybutyrate, we don't put any other stuff in in the product, obviously. And so I know other people co- combine it with MCT and you know, all this other stuff, and so you don't have to metabolize it in the same way. So like I said, it's a it's already a compound that's floating around in your bloodstream, and so you can just assimilate it. And so if it's a short-term fast, like an intermittent fast, I would say, no, it's not right to fast from a technical standpoint of that's what your body's already using for an energy source. And it's not going to spike your insulin. You're going to actually increase your ketone levels. I mean, look at your blood glucose and test your levels if you're concerned about this. The, the thing where I think you know, the science is out yet, but is the autophagy at like a two to three day window? Right. Maybe you would interfere with that. I don't know. We don't know, no one knows because we haven't looked at that yet. However, um, there have been other studies where, show, where it shows that increased beta hydroxybutyrate from exogenous sources, like a supplement, mimics a lot of uh, pathways that are found in fasting. So, a lot of the anti inflammatory pathways, a lot of this type of stuff mm-hmm. actually gets increased, even if you eat food, due to the beta hydroxybutyrate acting on certain cellular processes. And so it mimics fasting in that way. So I don't know if it would actually enhance autophagy or blunt it. We don't we don't know at this point. And right. that's just something to think of as far as like a... It may or may not interfere positively or negatively in that phase. But I think if you're just looking in a 16, 18-hour window, I would say you're not going to lose any of the benefits that you're getting from, from that window. Yeah. I,
1: and I think for most people who are asking that question, that's sort of how they're thinking about it or looking at it. Like, hey, if I wake up in the morning and I do this if I take an exogenous ketone first thing in the morning or you know, if my eating window is closed for the day and I feel like drinking you know, exogenous ketones in the evening, is that going to interrupt my fast?
0: Try um, it. And see yeah, that's, that's your level. That's, that's my suggestion.
1: Right. Um, well, so that's really interesting that you know, it may or may not uh, impact the fasting mimicking diet. Um, how would we test that? Is Still there a way?
0: Yeah, certain markers and measure autophagy with administration of exogenous ketones and that.
1: Yeah.
0: If anyone out there wants to tackle that one. Yeah, that'd be a really cool study. Ryan, Ryan, Larry, please. If you're listening, do that. We'll we'll send it to him and
1: be like, Hey, um, here's a study. Can you run with this? So we talked a little bit about food choices and sort of how you've been eating. We've talked previously, but, uh, you're going to give the carnivore diet a run in a few weeks. Um, Let's talk about some of your concerns, some of the things you want to test. What are you hoping to either experience or, or not see? What modifications or precautions will you take uh, as you set up your version of carnivore
0: diet? Yeah, so you and I chatted when you first started doing this, um, how, you know, I was asking where you're getting your animals from? Are you doing organ meats? I'll probably go, when I do stuff like this, I, I know you mentioned that you kind of did a at limited, so you, like you're you're testing or not really like measuring every single thing you're eating. Um, I might make sure I get a certain amount of organ meats, at least on a week-to-week basis. saying like, okay, I'm going to buy a liver or two. and I'm going to eat those this week, and mm-hmm. not necessarily be like, oh, it needs to be 17 grams of liver a day, but more so like a this week I'm going to have this shopping list and this is what I'm going to eat, mm-hmm. and then vary that. So maybe it's uh, one type of wild fish or another. I'm going to say like, okay roughly this much and like like you kind of corrected for a ribeye. I'm going to do that as well and try to keep it as consistent as possible, but get as much wild game as possible and then also get as much um, organ meat as possible. Um, you made up a good point earlier in a chat we had about getting marrow and tons of bone broth. And so that's another thing too. Um, what I worry about is just micronutrients in general and the micronutrient spread. Um, will that be levied by all the organ meat? I don't know. I guess we'll see. We'll see how we feel and we'll see how it goes. Um, and this is something that I haven't, I haven't really dug into as as deeply as other people have. And so, uh, I know that I know the micronutrient density of organ meats is off the charts and way better than any type of, uh, vegetable or fruit that we could have. And so right. there's that, but you know, is, is the diversity there? Um, I guess we'll see.
1: Yeah. And you know, one of the other things we, we didn't mention this in the previous conversations, but, um, you know, I've, I've heard Sean Baker talk about this. I've heard some of the other um, pro carnivore people on Twitter talking about this, but you know, the RDI, recommended daily intake for a lot of these micronutrients is based on the standard American diet. So we know, for example, that vitamin C and glucose compete for uptake. So if you eat a diet that doesn't contain as much glucose as the standard American diet, we may not need as much vitamin C in order to get what we need into the places we need it Um, another example of that would be manganese which is used in carbohydrate metabolism well if you're not eating glucose or carbohydrates you may have a diminished requirement for manganese so a lot of these rdi's recommended daily intakes may be not as accurate as we think if we're not eating the standard american diet the other thing is when have they ever been correct you know, every, everything that's ever been recommended has basically been wrong. So what makes us so confident in this recommendation that they're correct on micronutrients?
0: Right. I mean, I mean, just go through a survey of things like mitochondrial um, mm-hmm. function and like, okay, we need this at this phase in electron transport chain. Are we getting enough of that? And and just from an en- energy metabolic standpoint, not necessarily based on the RDI you know, right. Like garbage.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. No- that's uh, just that that's a thought that I've had over the last month, month and a half as i've been going through this, but
0: yeah, yeah. and you, you see this in in blood values as well, like for instance, vitamin d is a good one yep or or magnesium um a lot of these things were if you're over twenty four nanograms per deciliter of vitamin d you're technically are fine on a standard blood test, but your body actually doesn't function properly until you're at you know forty five maybe sixty five depends on a person um, and so same thing with reference ranges in blood work yep. That's just based on the average sick American, which again yep. do you want to be that person? I don't want to be that person. Yeah. No.
1: no, I don't either yeah. um, no but and you made a really good point, and that was one of the reasons that I focused on marrow organ meats and and bone broth is that you know we know the micronutrient profile in um, organ meats is is off the charts, and if you can get it from a variety of different types of wild game that are eating the biggest variety of herbs and grasses and, and plant sources, then you're going to bioaccumulate, you know, a wide range of those. So I'm curious, you mentioned wild game is going to be a part of your, um, your, your protocol. Where are you going to acquire your wild game?
0: It depends If I, uh, so I am either going to be in San Francisco or Austin at the time I do this. And so just whatever local farms or local people that I know in the area who either hunt or, have access to this stuff is going to be where I, where I pick it up. And so there's a, a spot up north in Marin that I go to um, called Bud's Custom Meats. <laughs> so, legit, legit sounding name, huh? Buds? Yeah. yeah. Um, Does he
1: sell online? No, no
0: I don't believe so. Um, they. So you mentioned also you, you do the U.S. wellness um, liverwurst. And so yep. places like that do exist. And so if I need to ship some stuff in, I'll do that. Um, so yeah, it, it totally depends on where I'm going to be at the time. Excellent. Um, obviously, lo- eating more local stuff is is ideal to me. So, you know, maybe I'll go, you know, wild, wild boar in Texas or something like that. Yeah. Versus here, you know, go a little bit different, go more fish. Um, another few things that I'm interested in, in tracking now, um, like you said, w- that you had levels of ketones in your blood. I'll be interested to see, like, if I adapt to a higher protein level, if I actually start producing ketones, and I adapt to that. Like I said, mm-hmm. I can't go over like 70, 80 grams right now. But I wonder if I switch primarily to this carnivore diet, if I will actually change my cellular metabolism to allow more of a ketogenic state. That would be interesting. Um, strength and kind of body comp will be interesting to me as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I've, I've been doing a little bit more gymnastics programming in the last couple of months just because I've been traveling a ton. I knew that's something I could do while be on the road. Yeah. Uh, but I definitely noticed... And I don't know if it's from eating more of a ketogenic diet or if it's from training a little bit differently, but strength is certainly down. Um, and with that body comp has gone, I wouldn't say worse, but I'm definitely a little bit smaller than I have been, um, in the past few years. And so I'm wondering if I add a little bit more strength training, plus this, like you said, strength just went through the roof of you. And so maybe yeah. that's something I start adding back in a little bit more.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it's Sean Baker, the, the, you know, biggest, most high profile proponent of the carnivore diet. I mean, it, when he was on Joe Rogan, he, he said, you know, if, if you want to grow more muscle tissue, well, one of the easiest ways to do that is yeah. to eat more animal tissue. Right. Like like you said, I mean, we're made of yeah. what we eat. I mean, if you eat more meat, it's going to facilitate your ability to, you know, lay down more muscle tissue.
0: Yeah. The same thing, that, this is why people don't realize how important collagen is Yeah. in connective tissue. Like if you want better connective tissue, you you have to eat connective tissue. Like that's just the way it is. Like,
1: <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: Yeah. So pro, like protein, like is made of building blocks. Yeah. It's like if you need those Legos if you want to build a Lego house it looks the same.
1: You guys have a, a collagen product, right? The perfect keto.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So it's collagen plus MCT powder. So we've found that using the MCT powder with collagen. So we noticed that a lot of people were, were just having regular collagen and getting some spikes in blood sugar because it metabolizes so quickly. Mm-hmm. And so pairing it two to one ratio of collagen to MCT powder um, actually blunted that and increased ketones a little bit. Um, Man, it just tastes ridiculous.
1: That's, that's really smart. Um, my wife's mentor, uh, when, when I met my wife, she was doing an endocrinology fellowship at the VA in Salem, Virginia. And, um, I love for her, a side of that. Yeah, her, uh, her mentor is this, he's a brilliant endocrinologist and they, she has been a part of his research and we just met him or ran into him again at the obesity society meetings in Washington, DC. Um, that was actually the very first week that I was starting the carnivore diet. And, um, when we were talking with him, he was actually there, they were presenting posters at the conference, uh, research posters, and he had done boluses of all three macronutrients, protein, carb, and fat. Given them to fasting individuals to see how it impacted their blood sugar. And, you know, just like you said, interestingly, um, protein, and I think people who've been paying attention to research know this that, that protein is um, insulinogenic. It, it does create that blood sugar, like protein by itself will create a blood sugar spike and an insulin uh, release, which is one of the reasons why I tell people not to have only protein before you work out, because you're going to get a blood sugar crash right. during your workout. Right. So yeah. I think it's 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 really smart that you guys did that. You added uh, a little bit of fat to it to prevent that.
0: So another thing that is kind of associated with that, like you've seen protein just before. Um, so there's a lot of, obviously, if the rationale of having protein after workout is that you're breaking down certain muscle tissue and then if you want to build it back up, you want those same building blocks, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of research coming out now that is showing collagen before or during exercise actually increases collagen synthesis and connective tissue repair after exercise and in between and so it's kind of an interesting that like i've noticed multiple papers like this that are coming out recently um a guy named mike t nelson i'm sure you know him yeah. he's, he's been peppering me with those because he knows that i'm a big fan of collagen and that is something that is what i've been especially with gymnastics stuff is like it's, it's connected to training it's essentially what it is like isometrics and and tissue training. And so I'm starting to do that where like right when I start working out, I'll have the collagen entity mix and then afterwards I'll have, you know, standard whatever type of real food protein. I actually feel pretty good doing that. Um, I feel like I recover way quicker in between when I'm getting less like overuse tendencies before yeah. there is before. That, like when I travel and don't have a collagen and stuff with me, like I'll sort of notice like my wrists and my elbows because of how much load of like handstand work and, and planche work and stuff like that. I get pretty sore, but with that stuff like before and during, especially not afterwards that I feel way better. So it's kind of an interesting note on timing and collagen specifically.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. That's really cool. Um, and I think just to, to circle back to his papers, he was telling me, and, and he, I, I will, I will track him down. And I'll try to get this and maybe put it on the show notes here for you guys. But, um, his, his name is Dr. Aronimish. Um, and, um, uh, it's spelled I R A N A M. Uh, I'm not even going to try. Ali Aronimash is his name. So I'll Google it and I'll put it on the show notes for you guys. I'm sorry, Dr. Aronimish, if you happen to hear this somehow. But carbs were three to 20 times more um, insulinogenic than protein or fat, or or they they had that level of burden on the pancreas was his wording uh, compared to uh, protein or fat. Um, obviously the 20 was for fat because it has a, um, uh, right. lower
0: burden. Um, yeah. But I mean, you, it's, just, you know, what type of carbohydrate,
1: I don't remember what, I, I think it was just a glucose bolus, like the typical one that, that they give you. If you go in and you
0: do like a fasting blood sugar, uh,
1: uh, test
0: be interesting to see that with like a polysaccharide or
1: yeah it would be and and this was actually like the second or third version of some of their studies um the original study that they were doing is uh they recruited me for it and that was actually the very first conversation i had with donna um, <laughs> she recruited me they it was a testosterone and growth hormone study and they were looking at males uh levels of these hormones fasted and then they would come back for a second day and um they would give you this carbohydrate bolus to see how the carbs impacted testosterone and growth hormone release. So
0: how, how did that work for you specifically? Um, did you ever get the results? of keep- Yeah,
1: well, I mean, I got my personal results um, and this was, this was 2009. Um, I don't remember exactly what mine did with or without the, the bolus, but I mean, obviously, um, you know, it's growth hormone is secreted through that fasting period. So, you know, on the fasting day, you saw these big pulses and he actually asked me if I was using steroids, uh, because my growth hormone pulses were so high, but I was adapted to intermittent fasting, but I was also supplementing with a product at that time called alpha GPC, which had been shown to boost, um, growth hormone levels. So.
0: Do you know the mechanism behind that?
1: I don't. Um, and it's been so long, um, yeah, I don't know, I, but I'll look that up. I, the product I was taking is no longer available, it was made by Biotest. This was back in 2009. I used to read everything wow. on T Nation yeah, and you know, yeah, I wrote so for I'm them. The, I'm, and the, same face. I'm the same face, yeah. So, um, but yeah, it was that uh, if you ever saw that small bottle, it had
0: a yellow uh cap
1: on the top and it was Alpha GPC, yeah. Um, so and they I would... actually
0: take that, yeah, pretty regularly because so I did a genetic testing and yeah. found that I'm pretty deficient in endogenous choline production and uptake okay. of choline as well. And so yeah. I feel pretty awesome whenever I take larger amounts of LGPC. I'm sure. Uh, obviously with working as much as I do too, that it I need it for my brain function. Otherwise I, I feel pretty foggy at the end of the day, but yeah. with it, I feel pretty incredible.
1: Nice. Nice. Um, but yeah, they actually, what they ended up compiling from that very first study was the, the large, and it, even to this day, it's the largest study of, Um, male hormones, Um, but they, they basically, um, you know, they found that growth hormone and testosterone are more impacted by health and body fat, body mass index than age. So like they would have an 80-year-old, they had, I think the oldest guy in the study that was healthy was like this 75-year-old cyclist who had like 10% body fat and exercised every day. He had higher levels of testosterone and growth hormone than an obese 18-year-old. So despite what, you know, most people think like about aging, you know, those numbers don't go down if you maintain diet and exercise the way that, you know, people like you and I talk about.
0: Right, right. Yeah.
1: So that was really fascinating. And yeah, like you said, love at first sight.
0: <laughs> just magic and yeah. you just hitting it off.
1: Yep. Yeah. <laughs> no, she, what she really did was she tricked me and she was like, I need to see the blood work on this before we're, you know, pursue a relationship. <laughs>
0: smart, smart one. I like it.
1: Yeah. All right. Anthony, we're going to get you to answer the, uh, the final question. Every guest has to answer this one. We want to know your top three tips to live optimal.
0: Uh can I do four? You can do four, okay, so I'll modify a little bit um, nutrition, eat real food, eat stuff that spoils hundred percent first for me um second so i've i've I kind of shift these in priority and now I'm starting to realize that stress management is so huge. I was looking at um I've been traveling a lot recently um countries like Spain France Italy people like I was like okay we eat terribly they have awful lifestyles they you know what what is, what is going on what is the life expectancy here like i remember in spain it was like i couldn't sleep it was like three in the morning i was jet lagged and people were just like raging every it was like tuesday <laughs> raging and then they, they were like like eating fried food and drinking every single night and smoking i'm like this, the people have to live till they're going like 60 here what's going on look at life expectancy and it was like top 10 and same with all these countries. I'm like, hmm, what, what could this be? And stress levels and like quality of life and per- perceived quality of life is mm-hmm. so high there compared to the place like the US. Um, the stress management to me has been very, very high. And so I would say to fix that, uh, meditation, huge is, is something that plus something like journaling, just writing down what's in your head. Um, so that'd be tip number two. Tip number three would be move often in, in different ways. So just like standing desk is not the answer. Okay. So I hate, hate to break it to you, but if you go from sitting all day to standing all day, you're not going to fix any problems. You're going to go from having a flexion bias, low back problem to having an extension bias, low back problem. Like it doesn't fix anything. So move, just move often. Um, and then tip four would be just sleep like a normal human, be- human being. So don't have any distractions, get a routine, wind down and just get, just knock yourself out for as long as you need. All right.
1: I like it. I like Switch it. Yeah. Uh, All right. So everybody listening, make sure you go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the show notes. We'll have links to Perfect Keto, uh, Equipped Foods, uh, some of the studies that we've talked about. And uh, make sure you go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, share the OPP with the people in your life who you know uh, will benefit from and enjoy the things that we're talking about here today.
0: Anthony, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it, Ryan.